we're beginning a new series that I've entitled, We Believe. Over the next couple of weeks, I want us to really look at some of the core doctrines or core beliefs uh, of our church. Uh, they are not unique to only our church. Uh, we are part of a, a denomination. We like to call it a fellowship, a cooperative fellowship of churches. That is the largest denomination, Pentecostal denomination, in the entire world. Um, and there are some core beliefs and doctrines that form the foundation of our theology. But I think that it's really, really important to know what you believe and not just what you believe, but why you believe it. In the lead up to this series, I was looking through some research that had been done and they had polled 600 people uh, in a, basically in a college uh, campus over on the West Coast. But they had polled 600 people and asked them if they believed that there was an eternal God. And then they asked all of these additional questions. But the stark reality was this, those who were asked if they believed in God, who said, yes, they do believe in God, when they were asked to give evidence or proof from their religious book about why they believe in God, they could not do it. Essentially, if I could say it like this, they were illiterate to their belief. They, they were raised that way. They had a personal belief maybe, but they didn't have the discipline to actually figure out why it is that they believe what they believe. So knowing what you believe is important, but knowing why you believe it, I think is paramount because the beliefs that you espouse, they affect every decision in your life. It affects how you raise your family, how you assist in raising your grandkids. It affects your financial decisions, like we just discussed giving to the church, tithes and offering. It affects literally everything about your life. It affects your marriage. It affects your worldview of how you view the world. It affects whether you have hope for a future. Amen? So knowing those things is important. First Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says this, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And there's this little phrase that often gets forgotten, yet do it with gentleness and respect. To anyone who asks you a reason for the hope there's a dear pastor who is a pastor of Southside Assembly of God here in Jackson. He's been battling cancer for several years. He's going through a stem cell transplant currently. And he posted a Facebook message last night. And uh, it was such a powerful, powerful thought. But he was talking about the hope that he has even in the midst of the darkest moment of uncertainty in his life. And the only way you can do that is not because you've believed some crazy doctrine somewhere, some wacky idea, but it's because you have a belief that's founded in something that we call the Word of God, the written Word of God. Amen? Interestingly enough, this verse that we just read from 1 Peter, it was written by the Apostle Peter, which you may remember... <laughs> is the apostle who was previously a disciple, who was previously a fisherman, that Jesus called to follow him. And he is the same Peter who denied Jesus three times. 
But he's the same Peter who stood up with boldness after having been baptized in the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost and preached to thousands of people gathered and helped to grow the, the, the or helped at the birthing of the church, the Christian church. And he writes these words later to encourage others, saying, listen, you have got to be ready to defend your belief whenever you're asked what is wrong with you? Why do you have this hope in the midst of despair? How are you managing to deal with this? That same Peter is the one who wrote those powerful words, and I think they still ring true today. They were echoing in my mind as I started developing this series because I want you as a believer in Jesus Christ, first off, let me say this, I want you to become a believer in Jesus Christ if you're not yet one. But to those of us who are believers in Christ, I want us to be able to defend the things that we believe in. And the truth is, you can't defend something you're not familiar with. I said it. (laughs) You can't defend something that you're not familiar with, something that you are not invested in. So I want to challenge you at the beginning of the year to make that commitment. You may have made a commitment eight days ago to lose 20 pounds or to walk a mile every day or to be nicer to your kids or be nicer to your spouse or whatever the case may be. Here's a spiritual resolution that you should make as a believer. No matter how many times you read the word of God, there's still something fresh and amazing available for your life in modern times from an ancient book. It's amazing when you think about it. So the title of the message today, you might can tell this, is The Book We Trust. So we believe the book we trust. We believe the book we trust. It's an ancient text, but it still has profound truth And wisdom for us today. We believe that the Bible is a unified story. And I want you to listen closely today. It doesn't matter if you've been saved and following Christ for 50 years. There's a possibility that the Holy Spirit could help you today understand something in a brand new, fresh way. It is the living word of God. That's what makes it powerful and sharper than a sword, the Bible says. It is living and active. So we believe it's an ancient text, but it still holds meaning for us today. It's a unified story of God's revelation of himself to humanity. In fact, it's the most influential book of all time. It's the most stolen book of all time. I don't know if you realize that or if you've ever heard that, but Gideons have put that organization, the Gideon organization, have put Bibles in every motel and hotel since before I was born. And they get misplaced all the time. I'm glad they do. Take it home if you don't have one and you need one. Take it. But it's the most stolen book in all of history. It's the greatest selling book of all history. It's comprised of 66 books. It's written over 1,500 years by at least 40 different authors And it carries one single, solitary, harmonious message. And that is this, God loves you. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but if you've ever, think about it like this in these terms. If you were a kid and you had a sibling, did you ever conspire to lie to your parents about something? Raise your hand. Okay, 
honesty in the house of God is good. Okay. Somebody sitting next to their mother going, sorry, mom. Um, but so you've conspired. You're like, okay, let's get our story straight. You know, I'm not the one that untaped the presence under the tree. Okay. That just happened by accident or whatever you conspire. And then somehow within a very short period of time, the truth comes out, doesn't it? Somehow, Mama, who's got eyes in the back of her head and ears on the ceiling, whatever, she figures out, okay, this is what's happened. So even two people have a hard time colluding together in the same room at the same time in history. But God divinely inspired at least 40 authors on three continents in three different languages to write 66 books of his story and his revelation to mankind. And it all says the same thing. That's amazing when you think about the power of the word of God that you have in your hand. So the circumstances surrounding the writing of the Bible would seem to guarantee its fallibility because it's written by humans. You know, it's inspired by God, but there are humans involved in the writing of it. Yet the message from Genesis to Revelation is consistent all the way through. God loves you. In fact, it's the best attested book of antiquity, and we're assured of a reliable text that is indeed trustworthy. It's been scrutinized. It's been um, criticized. It's been all of these things, and yet it's found to be true. In fact, I don't have time to like unfold all of the wisdom that I have this morning about the word of God, but I will tell you this. It knew things by God's divine will, scientific things that we in our world did not discover as scientific fact until much, much later. When the psalmist says he sits enthroned above the ring of the earth, talking about the earth being round. That was before anyone did some research to figure it out. How it maintained and there was nothing above it or below it. It was suspended in space. It's written in God's word. There are amazing things in there that have been confirmed by science and by history later. So the importance of the Bible's message demands us to fairly consider it. But it also, more than that, the truthfulness of its message needs to be known to you. It is observable, it is testable, and I promise you it's able to withstand scrutiny. I promise you. And I'm not just giving, I would say it's a money-back guarantee, but don't go digging your tithes out of the offering box in the back wall. Okay? It is a guarantee, though, that it is testable and remains above reproach. So we believe that the scriptures, both the Old and the New Testaments, are inspired by God, and they're the revelation of God to man. They are inerrant, they are infallible, and they are divinely inspired. We believe that the Bible, not the Quran, not books of Buddha, not even the guy who had the visions on the hill in America about Jesus, Joseph Smith, we don't believe any of that other stuff. We believe that the Bible itself is the authority for our faith, and for our life, for all of our behavior. Some people have said, and I've 
been a youth pastor and I've dealt with teenagers and I've been in children's ministry environments. I've been in all sorts of different facets. I've been on foreign mission fields and here in America as well. And I've heard unique questions. Well, pastor, it doesn't mention anything about, and then they'll fill in the blank, but it does. It may not mention something that we have in modern times, the way that we term it in modern times, but principally speaking, every answer you need can be found in the word of God. So here's point number one. The book we trust is true, and it's a little funny, because the Bible says so. (laughs) You say, well, okay, well, that's not enough, Pastor. I'm going to give you some real good insight today um, about the Bible saying so. The scriptures repeatedly claim to be truth. Now, others throughout history have said that they have spoken truth, but really we understand that the only authentic truth that is able to change a life is held in the scriptures that we call the Holy Bible. The first underpoint or subsection or subpoint of this is the Old Testament testifies to God's truthfulness. Now, as we talk about the Bible being true because it says it's true, that's not just enough because I want you to understand this internally, the evidence is there. But also externally, there's evidence that corroborates the message and testimony of the disciples and Jesus' life on earth and all of these things. So the Old Testament testifies to God's truthfulness. Write this reference down or one or two of these. Numbers 23.19. It says this, God is not a man that he should lie or the son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said it? Will he not do it? Or has he spoken it? Will he not fulfill it? God only speaks truth. That's why I was just caught, captured in the moment of worship a few minutes ago with us speaking about him being a promise keeper because all of y'all are failures. (laughs) I'm a failure. I've made a promise and I've broken it. Everyone I've ever come into contact with, even if I didn't know them personally, every human on this earth has made a promise And it has been broken in some way, shape, or form. But there is one who keeps his promise, and he is true. He's not a man that he should lie, or the son of man that he should change his mind. And guess what? There is no shadow of turning in him. He does not need to change. Amen? He's unchangeable because he's perfect. Psalm 119.89 says this, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. What the psalmist is saying, he's saying that your word is eternal. It's fixed in eternity. It is eternal. It is not just paper and ink. It is more than that. It is living and active. It's breathing life even today, thousands of years after its composition. Proverbs 30 verse 5 says this, Every word of God proves true. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. Somebody needs to hear that today. Every word he has spoken is true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. So those are some Old Testament places that you can see that God speaks and the word of God testifies that he is true and truthful. There's similar evidence that's found in the New Testament. The New Testament itself testifies to the validity of the truthfulness of God's word. Titus chapter 1 verse 2, the apostle says this, God never lies. 
Isn't it good to know that you serve a God that won't pull the rug out from under you? He's not pulling a trick, a scam, or a prank. He's not leading you down a dead-end road. He's a God who loves you, and he is taking you somewhere on purpose, and he never will lie about it. That's amazing when you consider it. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, the author of Hebrews says this, It's impossible for God to lie. Here's the thing. If it was possible for him to lie, he could not be trusted. So not only does the Old Testament testify of the validity of Scripture, but the New Testament as well. And then additionally, Jesus himself testifies to the truth of God's word. And he says so in John 17, 17, in his high priestly prayer. Jesus has been talking to his disciples in 14, 15, and 16 of chapter John, of, of the book of John in those chapters. He's been talking about his leaving, his departure, the giving of the Holy Spirit. And then he begins this prayer, this deeply compassionate prayer for his disciples there in that moment, but also his followers that would come after. And we call it the high priestly prayer. He declares this aloud for the crowd to hear. And he says, God to the Father, your word is truth. It's important that you read the word of God and take moments to study and dig a little deeper. Because the original language that he would have been speaking and that is recorded would have been Aramaic and Greek. Those were the languages at use in the time. And there are two different terms, one for truth and one for true. What you just said to me is true, but you are not the truth. (laughs) Jesus declares to God the Father while standing before his followers, your word is truth. Not just true, it is the truth. Amen? He verified the authenticity of the Bible. I don't know if you realize this, because I know that we know that in the New Testament, there are quotes from the Old Testament, and there's some connectivity. Jesus quoted to, or alluded to, or referenced directly, 29 of the 39 books in the Old Testament. While he was on the earth in ministry that's recorded in your Bible. Deuteronomy, first Kings. I mean, he's like all over the place quoting the prophets. He's quoting all throughout their history. He's, he says these things like it is written or it has been said or the scriptures say. So think about it. If something is important, it needs to be written down. That's why I'm so glad when I see people taking notes in church. If it's important, it should be written down. I practice these jokes in front of the mirror, and I really expect some better laughter. I'm kidding. But the truth is, you want important things written down. If you're buying a house, if you need to buy a house, you can see our realtor. Uh, Her name is Christine Witten, serving here at Celebrate Church, and we're so thankful for her. She's back in the back. She's shy, and she's like underneath the desk right now. But if you need to buy a house or sell a house, she's there. She's she's the woman you should go to. Don't, Don't get anybody else. But you know what she's going to do? She's going to give you a contract. Because you're going to have to sign something that says that you bought it or are buying it. A signature that says, I'm intending to do this. You've got to go through a process that includes some stuff that's written down. A few months ago, I did a small wedding ceremony by a fire pit in the fall in Brookhaven, Mississippi. 
And you know what I did directly after that ceremony on the back porch of these people's house? I put my signature on something that said this is their marriage certificate and they are married in the eyes of God. If you want to borrow money or lend money, they expect you to sign something, right? If you're getting hired by a new company, you want a letter of intent saying this is how much money you're going to earn, right? You want them to tell you what's in your contract. What would you think about this? If you were a highly educated person and you were seeking a doctorate degree and you get all the way to the finish line, you've submitted everything that's necessary, and then they tell you, you know what? Hey, we are a-okay. You're awesome. You got your doctorate. And then you say, okay, but like, where's the paper? Like, I want to hang something on the wall for my doctorate. Oh, we, we just, we don't have it on paper, but just trust us on it. Just take our word for it. Would you accept that? No, you wouldn't. So if it's important, it must be written down. And when I say that the word of God is true, and that's, it speaks about the truthfulness of itself and about our God, it's written for your benefit. So aren't you thankful that it's been written and preserved over the centuries for you today? Can I get an amen? So here's point number two. The book we trust is divinely inspired. You may have questions about this, and I would love to entertain any of those questions in a different uh, place in time. I can't give you a hot mic today and do all of that. But if you have questions about the authorship or inspiration or anything further than this, I love getting emails from people who are digging deep into God's word and having questions. I love getting a text message. Pastor, what does Deuteronomy 32 verse whatever say? I'm all about it. So don't ever shy away from that stuff. Let me just tell you though, as we speak about divine inspiration, it was not kooky and weird. I think sometimes we over-spiritualize something that God intended for us to understand. He, by his divine authority, prompted and inspired humans in a certain period of time to use their hands to write down historical accounts of what God did and what his people did. So I think sometimes we think that somebody sat there in a trance and the Holy Spirit like took over their body and they, you know, like kind of thing and started. No, it wasn't, it wasn't like the exorcism. It wasn't crazy. Okay. It was divinely inspired though. Look at what second Peter chapter one says in second Peter one. It says this in verse 19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention to like a lamp shining in a dark place until the daylight comes and the morning star rises in your hearts. Verse 20 says this, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own opinion. That word is opinion. It says interpretation, but the root of that word really means my own judgment. So in second Peter, he's telling them no prophecy in scripture has come from just simply a man's thoughts. Verse 21 says for no prophecy was ever produced simply by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were empowered or carried along by the Holy Spirit. The word or the phrase they're carried along is, it's indicative of a, um, of a sailboat, of a boat sail being carried and catching a wind. So there is something mysterious to it, but at the same time, we have to understand God worked in regular humans. And that's good for you to think about because he wants to work in you. 
Not to add books to the Bible, but maybe to add souls to his kingdom. Right? God still uses average Joes and Sallies. I don't know if we have a Joe or Sally, so I'm trying to mention names that we don't have. That is, <clears throat> that is so important for us to understand that the writing of Scripture was directed by the Holy Spirit. So the Bible does not originate with man, but with God himself. And because of that, it carries the authority of God himself. If it originated with man, who is fallible and can make mistakes it would not be able to be considered absolutely true. But it is absolutely true. Second Timothy chapter 3 says something else about Scripture. It says, All Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the people of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That phrase, breathed out by God, means divinely inspired. It doesn't necessarily mean that every word was verbally spoken into the ear of an author who scribbled it down kind of thing. It means it's divinely inspired, that God prompted people to do this, which is incredible because he still wants to prompt people to do things today. He wants to prompt you to kindness, to gentleness, to self-control. He wants to let the fruit of his spirit be blossoming and growing and thriving in your life. He wants to prompt you to hold your tongue when you really want to unleash it. Maybe I'm just preaching to myself. He wants to, uh, but do you understand what I'm saying? He's still doing his work today in us. So God prompted these authors to record his dealings with humanity, describe his nature, his attributes, and, and give us moral laws that he would issue in order to give some order to humanity, to his creation. Think about it like this. If it were not to have been divinely inspired, that factor of colluding with 40 different authors over that period of time, three different languages, all the things, there's, it's, it's, it is absolutely mathematically impossible There's no way that humans could have created this work of art without the hand of God and without the influence and inspiration of him. There are many different areas and places in scripture, in history, even in science that we can look at to verify and validate those things. God himself, who knows all things, we sang that in the beginning of the service. He knows the end from the beginning. It's a brand new year. Listen to me, church. He knows your end from your beginning. He knows about the grief that you'll face. He knows about the challenge that you will try to overcome. He understands your pain. He understands your joy. He wants to give you hope. He knows your ending before you even know your beginning. That is faith building. That is that causes hope to multiply in my heart to know that God knows the end. It's a good thing that we serve the only uncreated one. Amen? Here are some examples, though, in Scripture about knowing the end from the beginning. <clears throat> and it's Isaiah. 
Isaiah actually talks about the virgin birth 700 years before it occurs. It's a one of a kind, once in eternity scenario that never was replicated or done before. A child being born to a virgin and the The snapshot, the glimpse, is in Genesis 3 when Jesus as Messiah is called the seed of a woman. The seed does not exist inside of a woman. It's it's amazing when you think about it. Micah tells us the city in which the Messiah will be born, 700 years before it happens, geographically calls the city. Zechariah describes the day, the day, not the day, but how he will die in details, the details of his death, and so does King David. In fact, King David describes crucifixion a thousand years before Christ is crucified. And get this, you can study all the historical documents that exist and are known to us. The earliest known crucifixion happened 500 years after David wrote about crucifixion. There was a knowing of the end before the beginning. Amen? Just understand this. When Adam and Eve sinned, there was not a God scrambling around in heaven going, Oh, what do we do now? What do we do? He knew that when he created us, we would be fallible. And that he would call us to serve him who is infallible. He knew our end from our beginning. Daniel writes 500 years before Christ's arrival, and he talks about an empire. Listen to me closely. I don't know that you love history like I love history, but I want you to for just one minute, okay? Daniel writes 500 years before Christ's arrival about this very specific thing. He says there is an empire that is going to rise up And it will cover the earth and that empire will suddenly be cut off and it will become four empires. He then goes on to express an an understanding of future events by saying those four will become two and eventually those two will reunite together and become one and then the Messiah will be born. In the year 300 BC, Alexander the Great was leading the greatest empire in the world at the time. His empire was suddenly cut off when at the age of 32, he was killed. He, he died at that young age. He has four generals. Do some research. Find out your facts. He has four generals that then divide up the regions of his kingdom. Two of those generals are stronger than the other two and absorb those other two. And those two kingdoms or rulerships become known as the Seleucid and Ptolemaic empires that unite into the Roman Empire. And Jesus, the Messiah, who came to save the world, is born in the days of the Roman occupation because they are living in the Roman Empire. Daniel is prophesying this hundreds of years before it ever happened, and there was no equivalent. I want you to understand that, because there are doubters, there are atheists, there are naysayers, there are criticizers, there are those who offer a lot of scrutiny. I'm telling you, in the research of history, there is nothing else comparative in the actual modern day of Daniel that would have caused him to replicate that. There's nothing going on during that time, that sounded like this. It's amazing to know 
that God put these things in his word in order for us to understand that he is the true and living God, the one who is the truth. Amen? I'm telling you, the odds just mathematically of Daniel's prophecy coming true are astronomical. They say pretty much if you took quarters, stacked them two feet high, like side by side, the entire state of Texas, and you marked a single one, tossed it in the middle, and you put somebody there to go find the one, the odds of them picking out that one that was marked are like numbers that you've never even heard of. It's like one in 40 quadrillion. That's the same sort of thing that I think of when I think about Daniel's prophecy. How is it possible that God divinely designed this whole scheme and and then gave all the details or many of the details to us? It's amazing. So David, Micah, Zechariah, all of these people, they spoke about these things. In fact, Bruce Metzger of Princeton University, Princeton Theological Seminary, let me correct myself. He says this, for those who doubt, 99.6% of the Bible has been corroborated or verified by other historical documents and facts. So people want to try to harp on a single typo somewhere or something and they don't dig deep into the word of God and figure out, wow, this really does make sense. This really is God's written word for us. And if it corroborates things that happened in history, then isn't he a God that knows your future? Amen. He knows what you're facing. Here's number three, point number three. The book we trust was written by someone I know. I know it sounds elementary and very, very simple. You say, Pastor, I was coming for a theological lesson today. No, you weren't. You were coming for something practical. Here's the practical, okay? Here's the practical. You were coming to hear this. Read the word of God in 2023. Practically speaking, don't just read. Don't play, and we've said this before, um, like Russian roulette with the Bible and just flip it open and point to a verse. Read. I was so happy. I talked to a friend of mine who's uh, serving overseas right now and uh, praying for him, safety and all those things. He's in a desert far, far, far away. And he was talking to me and he asked a question about the two hardest books in the Bible, <laughs> Daniel and Revelation. And he's a longtime believer, raised in a good family, all these things. The point of what I'm saying is this. He said something that made my heart jump with joy. And he said, you know, Dex, he said, this last year, I read the book in chronological, the Bible in chronological order. He bought a Bible called the One Year Bible, and it actually chronologically lays out everything. So it, re- it rearranges all the verses and pa- places in Scripture. It's really, really cool. It's a little bit hard for some people to get into, but he loved it. And he said, and I, I read it cover to cover, he said, and I finished it before Christmas. He said... But man, Daniel and Revelation are just tough. They're just like wild. There's a lot of deep stuff. I want to know more about them. So we started talking. But I was, my heart was jumping with joy because I was thinking, man, what an awesome thing for someone who calls themselves a person of God, a son or a daughter of God, to say, this year I have read the entire Bible. It's not really that hard. It's three to four chapters a day. You can do it. There's apps out there to help you do it. Read the word of God. But point number three, it was written. It was authored by someone I know. Amen? 
I know that you said, Pastor, just a minute ago, 40 authors. But listen, there is one grand author of them all who inspired every one of the words that are there for us. And I know him personally. That's what makes this a big deal. And you say, well, that's just because you're a pastor and you went to college to study the Bible and study. No, it's a big deal because I'm a Christian that I know the author of this book. It's a big deal for you when you're facing hardship or when you're excited and filled with joy over some victory. It's awesome to know that you know the one who wrote that word. Amen? John chapter 5 has something incredible that Jesus is... He's really having a, um, a conflict, um, an adversarial conversation with people in John chapter 5. There are some religious zealots who are always nagging at him and, you know, chomping at his heels, chomping at the bit, if you will. And he says this in verse 37 as he's talking to them. He says, and the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. So the father testifies that I am true, that I really am his son. He says this, his voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word living or abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Verse 39 says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So Jesus is saying, get off your high horse just because you can quote all the books in the Old Testament and tell me what the prophets did and where they went and who they lived and who they married and whatever. Just because you can do all those things, that doesn't guarantee you eternal life. I'm here to tell you, just because you read the Bible will not get you into heaven. That's not the ticket. The ticket is a person. He was fully God and fully man. The son of God, the seed of a woman born to us born to us. God has no reason to have humbled himself in the way he did. Being high, mighty, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-seeing, all-hearing, he had no reason to humble himself and to, sub- to actually submit his son to the authority of the earth while he was here, except for one motivation, you. The love that God has for you caused him to humble himself to be at the place to redeem you. The only one who could build that bridge to get us back. And someday he's coming again to get us back. Amen? Read the word. You'll figure out all the details. It's awesome. But Jesus said the scriptures point to him. He's telling the Pharisees and those who were the naysayers of that day. Listen, you think just reading the Bible is going to help you? No, you need to accept me. So Jesus says in another place that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And that no man or woman comes to the Father except through him. I'm here to tell you that's true. The grand author of scripture is God himself. And I really do believe that we can know him better this year, better than you have in your last 10 years of knowing him or 20 or 40 or whatever, if we dedicate ourselves, discipline ourselves to the reading of the book that we trust. 
I hope that you've heard the, not just the, the passion, but the, the truth of the message. And I, I've been praying that the Holy Spirit will use this series and this message specifically to do something in each of us. If you feel guilt today because you've skipped out or because you've gotten busy or because, you know, Pastor, I've tried a devotional before and I just never got through but a few pages or I did buy one of those one-year Bibles, but I only got through January. And we're not talking about the guilt of the past. What I'm talking about is setting your eyes and sights on the future and saying, this God who loves me, who came to redeem me, I couldn't do it myself. Nothing I can do would have earned me his favor. Him who is the uncreated one sought to be created. The Bible says, he who was, who, who was without sin became sin so that you and I could then turn in our ticket and become the righteousness of God. We can't do that in our own strength. I can't do that by reading the Bible through in a year. I can't do that by giving a certain amount of money in an offering. The only way I can become the righteousness of God is by placing my faith and trust in him. I want to give you an opportunity this first few weeks in the new year. There's no better time than the present. And we say that whatever time it is, but there's no better time to set yourself in a good position with God and to say, God, forgive me of my sins. Cleanse me from my unrighteousness. I believe you sent your son Jesus to die for me. I believe that he's your son and that he rose from the dead. I believe that you love me. I confess my sins. I want to be a believer in you. Lord, I believe. There's no better time to do that than right now today. So if you're here today and you say, Pastor, that's me. I I want to take up this idea of a faith in a God who loves me. I believe that it's true. I want to confess my sins to him and become a believer today. If that's you, just raise your hand right where you are. If there's anybody here, the Bible says we can't come to him without actually even being prompted by the Holy Spirit to come to him. Today, I want us to do that. Father, bless Celebrate Church today as we commit to you in Jesus' name.